0: Good job, Ben. I know that was not an easy children's sermon to do, and and I guess it could have gone sideways in a lot of ways if you had asked the wrong questions, right? (laughs) So I know moms and dads out there, maybe were sweating some bullets at first, but but well well done. You know, we've all heard the expression, a match made in heaven, or maybe a marriage made in paradise. Um, And I know Valentine's Day is a little more than a week away, but that's not really very realistic, is it? Does anybody here have a perfect marriage? (laughs) You didn't have to raise your hand, Julia. They know me. They they know how I am, right? Yeah, there is no perfect marriage today, but there was a perfect marriage, and there was a marriage made in paradise. And we get a picture of that perfect marriage, that perfect wedding, in the earliest chapters in the Bible. So turn with me, if you will, to Genesis chapter 2. I didn't ask who had a perfect husband. Now, you can then raised your hand if you, does it? Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper corresponding to him. The Lord God formed out of the ground every wild animal and every bird of the sky and brought each to the man to see what he would call it. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky, to every wild animal. But for the man, no helper was found corresponding to him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept. God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. And then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. Both the man and his wife were naked, yet felt no shame. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the timeless truth that it contains. May we come to your word, Lord, with open hearts and minds to hear from you what you would have to say to us, to challenge us, to encourage us, to comfort us, to equip us. We could go into this world, building our lives, building our homes on the foundation of Jesus. In His name we pray. Amen. So in the Garden of Eden, life was perfect. Adam and Eve were the only two people for whom they lived happily ever after could have been a possibility, right? They really could have. The marriage rate was 100% and the divorce rate was zero. But then that sly serpent whispered his lies to the happy couple. They rejected God's perfect plan for their lives and the rest of the world, and everything began to unravel. And with sin came all of the problems and wretchedness of its curse, including trouble at home. And ever since then, if we were honest, marriage tends at least as much to resemble a war movie as it does a fairy tale, right? Marriages today are a far cry from that first Marriage made in paradise. And we've all heard the divorce statistics. And, and I'm, I, I want to. thankfully, I can tell you that divorce statistic that goes around all the time that says 50% of all marriages end in divorce, that was a statistic from the 80s. Thankfully, that's not true today. It's 40%. So we can be thankful for small favors, right? Still not great, but better than it used to be. I think, though, the sad reality is that there is a dark cloud behind that very thin silver lining, rather two dark clouds. The first, one reason there are fewer divorces today is because there are fewer marriages. People are not getting married like they used to. They Rather than risk divorce, they just choose to not get married, not be committed at all. They will live together instead. Marriage rates are lower today than at any time since 1870 in this country. And the second dark cloud is this. While the indications are that millennials and Gen Z are, are less likely to divorce, the boomers and the older Generation X, which I'm a part of, are divorcing at alarming rates. It, it's almost as if those with emptiness syndrome are deciding that marriage is for the birds and they're ending their marriages once the kids leave home. So when we consider the rate of divorce we consider the lower marriage rates, when we think about the numbers of people cohabitating outside of marriage, when we think of all of those young people that tend today to shun marriage for this extended adolescence, they're not saying they're not going to get married ever, but they're pushing it back later later in life to focus on themselves. And when we bring so-called same-sex marriage into the picture, it's clear our society needs a reboot on the meaning of marriage and what makes for a happy and thriving marriage. Our, our culture desperately needs this. And Genesis 2 gives us some amazing insights into these ideas, these principles that I believe will go a long way in helping us to develop thriving marriages and families. So I want us to look this morning and discover the secrets of a marriage made in paradise. And the first thing we're going to look at is the intention of God. The intention of God. And we see that right there in verse 18. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper corresponding to him. The first thing we see in that statement from God is God's concern for lonely Adam. He's concerned about this. And The Garden of Eden was a place of unspeakable beauty and wonder. It was a perfect place where man and God and all of creation could live in perfect peace and harmony. We talked about this last week. Seven times in Genesis 1, God says, it is good until we get to Genesis 2.18 where He says, it is not good For man to be alone, God looked at his creation and saw that Adam was the only one of his kind. He had no counterpart. And that Hebrew word alone carries the idea of being a piece isolated from the whole. So Adam was incomplete. He was a piece isolated from the whole. Now, that's not to say, don't misunderstand me, I'm not saying that someone who is single is somehow an incomplete person. That's not true. We've talked about being made in God's image. And everyone, man, woman, married, single, doesn't matter. You are made in God's image and you are whole in Him. It's not just that Adam didn't have a wife. He had no one, right? He was completely alone. He was the only human being on the planet. Humanity needs both men and women. It's not just that uh, an individual needs a mate. Society needs that inherent beauty and and diversity of male and female to thrive. It's not always God's will that someone is married. Jesus was single. Paul was single. There are lots of people in the Bible that would have been better off if they had stayed single. Amen. I mean, think about Samson, right? Nothing but trouble for him. There are times when God can better use somebody who is unattached and can be fully committed to go wherever God sends and do whatever God asks. But in general... It's just a generalization. God finds it's not good for people to be alone. We are created for relationships. So that's God's concern. And then we see in the second half of that sentence, God's conclusion. Helpful Eve. That's the answer for lonely Adam. So God surveyed the situation. He said, I need to produce a helper for Adam. Now that word helper means one who assists another in reaching fulfillment. It's about completion. So just as alone refers to being cut off and isolated and incomplete, I kind of picture like a puzzle piece that's over here by itself missing from the rest of the puzzle. If that's what alone gives us a picture of, this word helper is one who completes the picture. One who fills in that missing piece and completes the picture. And this helper had to be suitable for the man, had to be his equal. God gives Adam someone who's going to fill up what is lacking in his life. And that's one of the benefits of marriage, isn't it? Husbands and wives complement one another. Uh, there are so many things that Julia excels at where I lack, and, and a few vice versa, not, not many. I'm a bit more adventurous. She is a lot more organized. I thrive in large group settings. She excels in small group and one-on-one conversations. She's far more intuitive than I am and picks up on people's feelings. Uh, She's a great cook and I'm a great eater. So that works out real well. She's my proofreader, my editor, my sounding board. She keeps me grounded and organized and and helps me to pace myself so I don't burn out too fast. And she's a fantastic mother. I'm still trying to find out what I bring to the table. But I am a blessed man. And that's God's intention. His intention was to create a complete Humanity of men and women completing and complementing one another. And thankfully, it still can work that way today. That intention of God still exists. But then we move next to the incompleteness of man in verse 19. And the first thing we see about this incompleteness of man is a desire in us shaped by God. Okay, look at verses 19 and 20. The Lord God formed out of the ground every wild animal, Birds, beasts, he brings them all to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever he called the living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds, every wild animal. But for the man, no helper was found corresponding to him. Now, when you read this account, at first glance, it almost seems like Eve was an afterthought. I mean, did God really think that Adam would find a helper suitable for him? Among the animal kingdom? I mean, I know that every Disney princess has an animal sidekick, right? And I know that dog is a man's best friend, right? But certainly God knew that a trip to the zoo was not going to do it for Adam. He needed somebody else. Eve was not a plan B, was she? No, obviously not. God had a purpose in this little exercise for Adam. It was to awaken within him the desire for a companion this was for Adam's benefit God knew all along what he was going to do and so Adam sees these animals filing past him and he notices that every one of them has a mate and it dawns on Adam that he does not he's alone he's the only creature like him this was God's way of showing Adam his incompleteness it was God's way of stirring up within Adam this natural desire, this God-given desire to look for a member of the opposite sex for companionship. That is a desire that God has planted deep in the human heart. Now, as a dad of a daughter, I'm not too crazy about that idea, right? I mean, it's the, the idea that someday daddy's not going to be enough for my daughter is a hard pill to swallow. But that's God's design, isn't it? There comes a day when mom and dad aren't enough. That's as it should be. That's part of that transition from childhood to adulthood. And there comes a time in most people's lives when they begin to feel that yearning for a member of the opposite sex to settle down, to build a family, to establish a home. It's a desire shaped by God that He has put in each one of us. And it's a desire that's then satisfied by God. Listen, God's never going to awaken a desire in someone that He doesn't have a plan to satisfy. He's never going to put a burden on your heart that He doesn't have a way of helping you to fulfill that desire and that burden. Our problem is that we want to get ahead of God. Our problem is that we want to fulfill that desire in our time and in our way. And when we do that, we short-circuit God's plan for us. Here in Genesis 2, we see how it should work. As this desire for companionship arose in Adam's heart, God was ready and waiting to meet the need. Look at verses 21 and 22. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man and he slept. God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. And then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. Can we first just acknowledge how easy Adam had it? He didn't have to go fill out any online profile at a dating website. He didn't have to go out there making the dating circuit. No speed dating for Adam. He didn't have to ask someone to fix him up. I mean, guys, Adam never had the stress of having to ask a girl out and risk rejection. He didn't know that. Adam had it so easy. In fact, he went to sleep and slept while God did all the work. And he just woke up and there was his wife. I mean, he had it pretty easy, right? And he had no competition either. Adam was literally the best looking man around. God handled all the details for him. He was totally uninvolved. Now, obviously, we don't have it that easy today. But there's still a truth here for those of you who may be looking for a future spouse. Rather than worry or stress about that, rather than settle for less than God's best for you, be patient, trust God, prayerfully seek His will, and make sure that the heart you're pursuing is is someone who's pursuing the heart of God. And we trust God just as much as with Adam to meet us, to, to, to satisfy that need in our hearts. And so, here God puts Adam to sleep, performs the first surgery by taking one of Adam's ribs from which he would construct... The woman. Now, last week I talked a little bit about this, that you know, God, God formed the clay like a potter and made Adam. God knits us together in our mother's womb. And I talked about how the Hebrew word here where he made Eve is that word constructed, like a builder constructing a temple. And I missed a golden opportunity to plug one of my favorite hobbies up there. So it's like God is putting Eve together like Lego bricks, right? I, I, that, that resonates with me. If you've ever had surgery, how many of you all have had surgery? I'd say a lot of people. Is it a walk in the park? Yes? (laughs) Most people would probably say no. It involves some pain, doesn't it? There's some discomfort. Listen, any relationship worth having is also going to have some pain and some discomfort with it. Because a relationship of marriage forces us to consider someone else's needs before our own. To make sacrifices out of love for someone else. To put someone else first. And let's be honest, that can be hard and that can be painful and that can be uncomfortable to do, can't it? Because our natural bent is towards self-centeredness. And just as it takes time to recover from surgery and to adjust to a new reality, the same is true with marriage. But it's worth it. It's worth it because marriage brings wholeness, it brings life, it can bring healing into our lives. Now, you may be wondering as we look at this Scripture, David, do you really think that God took a, a, a rib from Adam and made Eve? I mean, did God really do that? Listen, if I believed that God could speak the cosmos into existence, if I believed that God could take a lump of dirt from the ground and shape it into Adam, why would I have a problem in believing He could take Adam's rib and build Eve from it? I don't have any problem with that. I believe that's what God did. Now, did God have to do it that way? No. God can make whatever He wants, whatever way He wants it. But I think He created Eve from this way because of the powerful symbolism that it has for us today. I I tell every couple that I marry this, that here God is painting a picture for us of how marriage is to work. Eve didn't come from Adam's head to rule over him. She didn't come from his feet to be trampled on by him. She came from his side to stand by him as his equal from under his arm to be protected by him, from near his heart to be loved by him. It's a beautiful picture of marriage. And that's God's intention for marriage. It's both a theological, spiritual aspect, but there's also a practical aspect to marriage. There are practical reasons why nearly every civilization until today has defined marriage as one man and one woman committed to each other for life. And I just want to share with you a few of those practical reasons for society why God made marriage the way He did. One, marriage is naturally oriented toward procreation. Sex makes babies. Babies need moms and dads. And society needs babies, right? We need new people to replace us as we get older and we pass on. And every one of those children need a mom and deserve a mom and a dad. Now, that doesn't always work out that way, but that's God's intention. And that's what is best for every child. And so marriage acts to regulate sex and to protect it to homes and families and society. Male passions and instincts, let's be honest, men need to be civilized, right? It's not good for man to be alone. Marriage helps to settle men down. Helps to domesticate us. Helps to focus our energy and our desires and our passions on helping someone else, not just ourselves. It gives us a family to fight for, to work for, to provide for. We as men need that. Or else we kind of go off in all kinds of destructive directions. Marriage comes with the expectation of permanence. A strong marriage culture brings stability and security to society. Marriage empowers and protects women from abuse and from opportunistic men. Marriage works to ensure that children get from both parents the attention, care, and provision they require. Now, the same-sex marriage agenda twists and denies these timeless truths. And in his book on this topic, Ryan Anderson summarizes the societal value of marriage and how same-sex marriage threatens it. And he's writing, uh, he's a Christian, but he's writing this from a very sociological perspective. He says, Marriage is based on the anthropological truth that men and women are distinct and complementary. The biological fact that reproduction depends on a man and a woman and the social reality that children deserve a mother and a father. Redefining marriage to make it a genderless institution fundamentally changes marriage. It makes the relationship more about the desires of adults than about the needs or rights of children. It teaches the lie that mothers and fathers are interchangeable. God created us in His image. And like Him, He created us to be in relationship with other people also made in His image. And when we look at Genesis 1, 26 and 27, it says that God created them in His image, in the image of God He created them, he created them male and female in the image of God. That's how God has structured his creation. And I don't think anything better reflects or facilitates that divine image in the context of human relationship better than marriage. So we've talked about uh, the, the intention of marriage. We've, we've talked about uh, how God has, has given us and shaped these desires for us in marriage. Let's close now by looking at the invention of marriage. Marriage does not belong to the government. It belongs to God. Hear me out. It was His idea. He designed it. He created it. He knows best how it works. And the testimony of Scripture is that marriage does not belong to the state or to society, be defined however they please. Rather, the Bible identifies marriage as belonging exclusively to God and established by God. The state is to recognize it and protect it, not to establish it. Society is to support and to guard it, not to redefine and shape it however they want. And, and, and the sexual revolution has turned those tables, treating marriage as something the state establishes and the church merely recognizes. And our society has been reshaped to support and encourage the happiness of adults rather than the nurturing of marriage and protection of children. Genesis reminds us that there is something more profoundly true than any cultural fad or current philosophy. Because civilizations come and go. Governments rise and fall. Cultures change and change and change again. But the kingdom of God has no end, and the Word of God stands the test of time forever. It does not change. And here in Genesis 2, all the way back to the beginning, Of humanity, We see that. And we see here the very first wedding. So I want us to end by looking at the essential elements of what constitutes a biblical marriage that will reflect God's glory and empower our families to thrive from the start. The first we see here is that marriage involves a response. Look at verse 23. And the man said, "'This one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. "'This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man.'" So again, Adam woke up and he saw this beautiful, perfect woman standing in front of him. And his response was, yes. Now here is one like me. The Hebrew word for man is ish and for woman is ish. So somebody once said that Eve put the awe into mankind. It's from ish to isha. We might say she put the woe in man. Uh, Adam responded enthusiastically and wholeheartedly to this woman standing in front of him. And the very first recorded human words in the Bible is a love song. Adam sees Eve and says, Finally, here is one that I can't live without. Here is one who is compatible with me, a true partner with whom I can fulfill God's command to multiply and fill the earth and to rule over it. This This is the first ingredient of every marriage. That element of heartfelt love and certain knowledge that this is the person that God has in store for you. That His will is for you to spend the rest of your life with this person and an exclusive partnership of love and submission. It's the first ingredient. Marriage is never something to be entered into lightly. It's never to be taken flippantly. It should be prayed about. It should be strictly observed according to God's word. Because if God's commands about marriage are ignored, it leads to disaster and heartbreak. Biblical marriage begins with a response a yes, a full commitment to this person that God has prepared for you and has prepared you for. And we see that right here with Adam that response, that commitment. But secondly, we see marriage involves a responsibility. Look at verse 24. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife and they become one flesh. And then it goes on to say that a man should leave his parents and cleave to his wife. This is a two-step process that every couple should give careful consideration to. What does it mean to leave? What does that mean? It means that you place your marriage above every other relationship except for your relationship with the Lord. Every other relationship comes underneath and after that relationship with your husband or with your wife. You are more than just domestic partners. You're more than just co-parents. You should be each other's best friends. And moms and dads, and I know this can be a challenge at times, but that means that you've got to put your marriage even before your children. It's so easy, especially at different phases of parenting, to prioritize your kids and their needs and their busy schedules and to elevate that above your marriage to the detriment of your relationship with your spouse. Listen, the best gift that you can give your children is a strong marriage because as your love for each other thrives, they will thrive. And that's not just for when they're living at home. That's for after they've gone and begun their own lives as well. You can be a blessing to them. Leaving also means that every activity outside of the marriage relationship takes a back seat. This includes things like your career, your hobbies, your friends, sports. I know I'm stepping on toes now. Outside of your relationship with God and your time in His Word and in prayer, there is no activity and no relationship as important as what you have with your spouse. And God will hold us accountable to how we prioritize this relationship. Now, I want you to notice one thing in this that I think often goes, uh, just kind of flies back past us. It says this is why a man leaves his father and mother. God is talking to us as men that we are the ones who leave our family of origin. Now, in our culture, we kind of get that turned around a bit because, you know, the, the, the dad gives away the daughter, Right? And so we kind of get that a little bit backward. And of course it's true for both, right? Both the, the wife and the husband are leaving their family of origin, has been, has been said, and, and beginning a new household, a new family unit. But I think God is making a point by emphasizing the men here. Husbands, listen to me. It is chiefly up to us to maintain covenant faithfulness with our wives and to put them before anything else. It's up to us to protect the bonds of marriage. And that's a responsibility given to us right here in Genesis 2. Malachi chapter 2, verse 14 says, The Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. Again, God is putting this on us. You have been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. God holds us accountable and responsible. That's what it means to leave. What does it mean to cleave? Well, that word means to adhere to, to stick to, to be bound together by a strong, bond. And this cleaving isn't an instant process. It doesn't happen the minute you say I do. It begins at the marriage altar, but it continues to the deathbed. It is a lifelong process. Cleaving is about having an absolute commitment to one another, which is something very lacking in our world today. The leaving is sort of the negative aspect of it. The cleaving is the positive. The leaving is the forsaking all others. The cleaving is that I am devoted and committed to you. I think this is one of the reasons that marriage Rates are declining today and more and more people are living together because there's this, this attitude, this mentality of, well, you know, let's just try it for a while. Let's just live together for a while. Let's not get committed. Let's not get entangled. And, and if it doesn't work out, then we'll just find somebody else. That is a far cry from what God intended. Cohabitation is the attempt at the leaving part without the cleaving part. And it's incomplete. And it doesn't work. We need to understand, and especially young people, we need to understand cleaving is not a passive thing. It doesn't just happen. It's the result of hard work. A marriage is only worth the effort required to maintain it or to save it. And when people just cohabitate together, there is no commitment. There's no leaving. There's no cleaving. There's nothing to maintain. There's no effort that goes into it. Marriage takes work. Amen? It takes effort. It's like trying to maintain your physical home. requires work. If you just do nothing and let your house go, it'll end up falling in all around you. And the same is true of our marriages. We have to put effort into it. The Greek word for cleave carries with it the idea of sticking together like glue. It's the picture of two pieces of metal welded together so strongly that you can't tear them apart without doing damage to both. And if you really believe that in marriage the two become one flesh then you have to believe that anything that tears those two apart does great damage to them, to their families, their children, their churches, and their communities. If you're married, you're not just a couple. You're a family unit. That word unit has the idea of one. You've become one together. God has declared you to be joined together until death separates you. And I think if more couples took that seriously, it would transform our homes, our communities, our churches, and our nation. If couples thought of themselves as a single body, if they loved one another as they do their own bodies, as Paul talks about in Ephesians 5, divorce would be just as serious and just to be as avoided as an amputation would be. If you have an injured or a diseased limb, you do everything you can to save it. You can't always, but that's your heart. That's what you want to do. And the same needs to be true about our marriages. Now, if you've experienced divorce here this morning, I know that this can be a difficult topic. And I want to assure you that I have nothing but compassion for you today. I've preached about divorce a number of times and and don't have time to go into all that today. But for today, just let me say this, that divorce, while it's never part of God's plan, and it always, always, always falls short of His will, we have to acknowledge that none of us lives in paradise. We're not in the Garden of Eden life is broken relationships are messy and god is merciful i want you to hear that god hates divorce the bible says that but the old testament in the old testament god made provision for it not because he sanctions it not because that's what he wants for you but because he knows our frailty it's an act of his mercy so divorce is not some unforgivable sin No matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, no matter what you've gone through, I want you to know that God loves you, that God forgives, that God heals, and that God wants to use you in service to His kingdom. Marriage. It involves a response. A wholehearted commitment to someone that you believe God has brought for you to spend your life with. It involves a responsibility to leave and to forsake all others and to cleave to your spouse and to support them and to put them first. And then, third, it involves a righteousness. Look at verse 25. Both the man and his wife were naked, yet felt no shame. Adam and Eve were naked. They felt no shame. This verse simply drives home the truth that the only valid arena for sexual expression is within the marriage relationship. That is not the message we get from the world today. And it is easy for us and for young people to be led astray by the world's twisted ideas about sex. Hebrews 13.4 says, Marriage should be honored by all. Now I want you to think about that, by all. It's not just talking about the husband and the wife marriage as an institution should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral, whether they're married or not. I don't think that I could put it much clearer than that. God takes sexual purity very seriously. And He's not going to change because of opinion polls. He's not going to change because of society's changes. He's not going to change because of political platforms or to protect somebody's feelings. God's Word is just as true today as it was 2,000 years ago. It's not changed. And how He created the human heart and human relationships to flourish hasn't changed. This morning I want to ask you, if you were to honestly take your marriage and lay it alongside this passage, How would you measure up? Would your marriage stand as one made in paradise? Probably not. So where do you see that you need to do some work in your marriage? Maybe there's some leaving and cleaving that hasn't been happening in your marriage that you need to work on. Maybe there's some activity or pursuit that's coming between you and your spouse. Maybe your kids or taking some of the emphasis and the focus that that used to belong to each other. Do you feel that you're one flesh? Husbands and wives, I invite you to take a deep look at your relationship. And whatever God is saying to you in this sermon, respond together before the Lord. Let Him have His will in your marriage. Are there things in your relationship you need to address? I'll tell you, I'm not a perfect husband. I'll be the first to say it. Anybody else agree? Not that I'm not a perfect husband. But about yourself? <laughs> Am I the only one? Who, who in here is not a perfect husband? Men? Who in here is not a perfect wife? Okay, we can at least start there. Yeah, that's good healthy confession, right? Get that off our chest. We all have areas in our lives and in our marriages that we can work on. There's all different ways we can each pursue and pray to be better husbands and to be better wives. And listen, if your spouse isn't a follower of Jesus, the first order of business that you have is to pray for him or her and work on helping them come to faith in Jesus Christ. That's the first place to start in your marriage. And if the sizzle's begun to fizzle a little bit in your marriage, pray and ask God to restore the passion that used to be there. I mean, it happens. And and it's something that God can help with. And it's something that takes both of you to focus on. Give your marriage to Jesus. Let him fix what's broken. Let him strengthen what's weak. Let him take what's good and make it even better. Maybe this morning you're not even married. You're thinking, David, this sermon's just, you know, what, what does this have to do with me? But maybe you are concerned about your future. You're concerned about is there somebody in your life in the future? Who will that person be? Uh, bring that need to the Lord. Again, bring that desire shaped by God to the Lord. Let Him work to satisfy it. If you're single, or maybe for whatever reason you're single again, maybe there's an area of your life that you just know needs to be brought to the Lord today, whatever that might be. And whether you're married, divorced, single, widowed, like me, you may just be worried in general at the direction of our culture. And the attitude there is towards sex and sexuality and marriage today. Listen, there is much that you can do to proclaim and display the truth about marriage. There's much you can do to honor marriage, as Hebrews thirteen four says. It's not just married people that can do that. Single people can honor the bonds of marriage. By, being, by pursuing purity and holiness, by praying for and encouraging those you know that are married, by standing against the twisted thinking in our world today about how God has created us male and female and how we relate to each other. Please understand, God has a plan for everyone here today. Every one of you. Whether you're married or not. Whether you have children or not. And that plan may or may not involve those things. But I guarantee that God's plan for everyone here today does involve Jesus. God's plan for everyone here today involves salvation. God's plan for every one of you today involves sharing the gospel with those who are lost and making disciples from all nations. That is God's plan for each of us. For some of us, He gives us a spouse to help us accomplish those things. For others, He gives us other means and other avenues and opportunities. It's in God's plan. It's in God's will. Will you surrender to His plan for your life, whatever that may be? To work on your marriage, to pursue some burden that God has placed upon your heart, to strive to be the best man, woman, child of God that you can be, to be someone who encourages and ministers to other people. What is God laying on your heart today? Maybe God's calling you and your family to unite with this church, or God may be calling you to salvation today, to come into a love relationship with Jesus Christ. That is the most important relationship any of us can ever have. Let's stand together and pray. You respond as God leads you today. Father, Lord, we thank You for the gift of marriage. Lord, we thank You for the gift of procreation. Without that, none of us would be here today, Lord. And we thank You for the men and the women, the moms and the dads, the grandparents that have been in our lives, have been examples for us. Not examples of perfection, but examples of humility. Examples of confession and repentance and forgiveness. Examples of patience and long-suffering. God, we thank you for the legacies that have been laid down before us. God, help us to strive in the power of the Holy Spirit to leave that kind of legacy for those that come behind us, God. Forgive us for our sins and forgive us for our failings and forgive us, Lord, for where we don't live our lives according to your will and plan. And God, help us to to leave those things in the past and to press on toward tomorrow to be better. Men and women, sons and daughters, husbands and wives, friends, God, help us to be better for the sake of this world, for the sake of those who are lost and dying, for the sake of those who are hurting and broken, for the sake of those who are wrapped up in guilt and in in, in hurt and in bitterness that, that have a difficult time forgiving those that have hurt them, God. Help us to come alongside them as representatives of your presence and your peace, to help them to know you and to love you and to follow you every day of their lives. Whatever you're speaking to our hearts individually, as couples, as families, God, help us to be obedient to your Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.